Good morning, church. I don't know if you guys have noticed, uh, but we've been in the book of Ephesians for a while now, kind of bouncing away from it and then coming back to it. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. I'd probably like to spend, um, well, the next four years, maybe five years, we'll just take a year at a time, chapter at a time, in this book. And I'm always nervous when I get real excited about something or I have a particular uh, kind of just, you know, a favorite passage that I'm looking at and we're, we're going through and, and everything that comes with that. And so I try to be a little compassionate and make sure that we have a, a good rhythm and we're moving along through that. And that's the reason why, as we've gone through our study of the book of Ephesians, why we've broken it up into several different sermon series. The first one, what is our old identity or what's the old you? And that was about two years ago when we came to that and we looked at really Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. But it's not enough just to say this is the old me or this is who God said that I was before I was saved. It is important, though, that we realize that the world around us is in that same state. And as we uh, seek to connect with the world, it's important that we see ourselves or our past selves in that. But it's also important that we take hold of our new identity because this is really... The crux of the entire gospel message, at least in the sense of what it means to live out our faith, that we would not just be people who know who we were, but that we would be people who know who we are. That we are in Christ, that we have identified with Him, and that He is our identity. That we don't belong to anything outside of what He has created in us. And that through that identity that we are also identified with the church. Uh, this is one of my absolute favorite points when we read through the Bible and uh, particularly spiritual people who have come to this connection and realizing that God has this plan, this amazing, wonderful plan that people who are incapable of saving themselves, He's going to redeem on their own behalf. In fact, He's going to reconcile them unto Himself. That He's going to make a lasting relationship with them that is restored and upheld, not through their strength of obeying everything that God's told us to uphold, but that through His strength, He's going to make these His people. Now I read that, and if I'm completely honest, especially when I was younger, which was a whole year ago, um, if you can't tell. What's the point now? If I've been redeemed, if I've been reconciled, if my identity is no longer a part of this world, but if my identity is completely consumed with being a part of the kingdom of God, why are you keeping me from that? In all reality, it's easy to approach my new identity in Christ and say, I'm just ready to go home. I'm incapable of living a perfect life here on earth. Even as a Christian, I'm at war with spiritual forces against me. I'm struggling in myself. How am I supposed to be the man or the person that I'm supposed to be? It doesn't matter how far along you are on this spiritual journey or how mature you've become. The reality is that we all face and we're reminded of it with more frequency than we would probably like to admit. We are failing people. I'm not the husband that I want to be. I don't have the attitude that I want to have. 
I get angry faster than I'd like. And I think I'm way smarter than I actually am. And that forces me to be a lot more prideful than I should be. This is just the, my personal reality. And I know that each of you have your own, your similar struggles, the things that you are up against. Well, that's why in this third section, we didn't just stop that our identity was in Christ, but that he's given us the church. And I love what Ephesians chapter 3 says, that it is through the church that the mystery hidden for ages in God is made manifest. The church has an integral part to play in the way that believers continue to mature in life and in faith. The way that we grow in Christ is through the encouragement, the exhortation, the edifying relationships that are struck with the God's people. The reality is, I do not see how it's possible for a Christian to be completely overwhelmed and transformed by this covenant of grace that God has given us and to not also, in the same way, want to be with God's people on a regular basis, especially as we move into the equipment or how we've been prepared to live our Christian life. And this is where we've been most recently, looking at the whole armor of God that has given us, that we might be able to stand firm in all of His might against the spiritual forces, against the schemes of the devil, against authorities of cosmic powers of the present darkness. How are we supposed to live our life in a world that is ultimately against us? And it comes back to the church. I shared this illustration with you a few weeks ago, but the reality is when we think about our Christian lives in this world, each of us going out into the world, going to our jobs, living with people, uh, maybe even just going home and living with family members who are not perfect. We come to the church like Christian soldiers who have darts sticking out of our backs from the attacks of spiritual warfare. And we say to the brothers and sisters in Christ, purify me, help me, embolden me, because guess what I'm doing tomorrow? I'm going back. And I'm going to keep going back. And I'm not going to stop going back until Christ comes back. It's tough. As we come to the end of the book of Ephesians, and I realize that my pace has slowed or slowed down, we're finally moving past the armor of God towards Paul's final greetings to the church in Ephesus. And just reflecting, if you don't mind, I'd like to make a confession. The past nine weeks have been tough on me. I feel like I've been beating you guys up. I feel like the Word of God has been particularly painful to hear. And maybe that's my insecurity because much of it's been painful for me to hear. I want to turn our attention on Paul's attitude for bringing up righteousness, for bringing up peace that we should reconcile with one another, with this helmet of salvation that transforms us and identifies us, with the importance of prayer I want to turn our attention to his attitude throughout this whole letter. Everything that he's written from the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1 up to this point, how does he close? If any of you have ever written a personal letter, I think you already know the dilemma that Paul's up against. It's easy to begin, brothers and sisters. Hey, you, dear friend, how do you end it? 
like me, I just kind of realize I've ran out of things. I don't really have a conclusion. I say that was way longer than it should have been. I'm just going to wrap it up there and sign my name. Paul's much more intentional. Our text today comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. I'd like to read through the whole end of the chapter, but for this morning we may just cover the first two verses. If you'd open your Bible there, I'd like to pray before we read, and I'd ask that you be ready to read along with me as I read out loud. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning and the time that we have together. God, we thank you for the edifying relationship that we have in your people. God, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the truth that is found in your law and that we would love it. God, that we would have an attitude that could only come from you, that we would be able to understand it. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. And the Bible says, So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul's already beginning to zoom out from everything that he's kind of laid hold to in this letter. And I say zoom out because he says, there's a lot more I'd like to tell you. Well, good news, I'm not going to put any more in this letter. I'm sending you Tychicus and he'll tell you everything else. Before we talk about this Tychicus fellow and find out what he's up to and what he's like and what his role is to play in this apostolic ministry of Paul and everything else, let's just look at what Paul's actually saying. He says, I want you to know how I am doing. I've sent someone for this very purpose, that you would know how me, Paul, how I'm doing, because I want that to encourage your hearts. What a strange thing to say. Paul cares that the people in Ephesus care about him. Some of you have already been here and are familiar with our context whenever we look at where Paul's at, and we know that he's in prison at this time. And uh, coming towards the end of his ministry and everything else, he's been in prison now. Most likely he's already been stoned, he's been beaten up. This Paul guy, we like to think about the Apostle Paul with this beautiful portrait. He probably looked like Quasimodo, if we're real honest. He's probably hunched over. He has a glass eye. His hand doesn't work. He's been beaten, and he's in prison. Writing to a church that he spent the majority of his ministry with while he was planting churches throughout the Asia Minor area, writing to the church in Ephesus, he is, certainly cares about how they're doing. Ephesians chapter 1 he begins the letter, I'm sorry, Ephesians um, chapter, yeah, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his great power towards us who believe according to the workings of his great might that he, might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name, that is the name, not only in this age, but in also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I had to read it all because that's all one sentence. Paul's already giving thanks. He's already given thanks for the saints who are in Ephesus, who are gathering in this church, the people who he's exhorting, the people who he's reminding of their state as children of wrath, people who are new, identified with Christ, who are identified with the church, who have a life to live that impacts everything, their relationships with husbands and wives, children and parents, bond servants and masters, or we might even say um, employees and employers, Everything's been affected. I'm thankful for you. I pray for you. I haven't stopped to pray for you. I haven't stopped praying about you. Everything that you are, I care about. And even though I'm away from you, even though it would seem that there are other issues pressing in my life, for instance, my glass eye, I care about you, church in Ephesus. And I'm writing you this letter in part because I want you to care about me. Because I am, a I am up against some spiritual warfare. I am struggling. I need you to be praying for me. When we look at this, the question might come up, do we actually celebrate the faith of others? Or... Have we become like the fundamentalist churches so wrapped up in our minds that we are completely skeptical about any profession of faith that doesn't look identical to our own? Part of the unity that Paul is encouraging the believers to take hold of in chapter 4 when he says that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and he's giving us this picture of a church that is united and fulfilling the commission that has been given to us, is that we would be united in this faith. There would be community that exceeds even our closed covenants. That we would be united to one another in a way that we pray for the strength of the saints because we recognize that the kingdom of God is bigger than us. And that the saints all over the world are in need of our prayers. That we wouldn't be so close-sighted that we would be able to see how urgent it is not only that we pray for our church, but that we pray for the other churches in our communities. That we pray for their ministries. That we pray for those who are being ministered to. That we pray for those who are children of wrath. Because ultimately, I believe, no matter how muddled our doctrine or theology might get, if we're faithful to this, God's faithful to speak. Now, the truth is, we can twist Scripture. And there's people that have done valiant jobs of making the Bible say things that it never actually said. I think the Bible is pretty clear. I relish the fact that when I think about how God ordained Greek to be the language that the New Testament was written in, that it was the common people language, that He did not 
reveal himself through the scriptures with the purpose of giving us a convoluted treatise of who God is or what he's done, but that he's made things simple. I think Paul's pretty simple when he says, I want you to know how I am and what I'm doing. Because I think this will encourage you to know that even though I'm up against all of these things, even though I'm not doing so well, even though all of these circumstances have come against me, I'm still faithful to the same Lord that we share. I want this to encourage you because the reality is in the church in Ephesus, you're up against everything that you're up against. I mean, basically, this is the the polytheistic capital of the Asia Minor area in Ephesus. And he says, even though you're up against all of these different situations, you can still be faithful to the Lord just like me. It should be an encouragement to you to know that our one Lord that we serve has preserved me and that he continues to preserve me. And that even though I'm in prison, I'm still witnessing to the guards who are standing beside me. That God still has a plan that the gospel would be preached wherever we go. That our desire would be that we would grow. And this comes back to what he writes in Ephesians chapter 1 when he's saying that he gives thanks for them. How does Paul pray for the people that he cares so much about? Does he pray that the church in Ephesus would grow and that the walls would expand and that the pews would be filled and that there would be no seating room and that people would have to stand up to come and listen to somebody preach? No. He probably knew they had a preacher just like me. wasn't that good. But he believed that the Word of God was powerful. He believed that the Word of God in the life of a community of faith was powerful. And he realized that it wasn't just the preaching that was going to equip the saints. But it was going to be the friendships. It was going to be the hospitality. It was going to be the love, concern, and compassion that caused people to grow closer together. It was going to be the prayers. It was going to be the time spent in their early morning hours thinking about the loved ones who are struggling because it seems like they cannot come up for air. Medical concerns that burden us. Those things are worth our time in prayer because I care about you. Situational and circumstantial things. Well, that's worth my time in prayer because I care about you. My desire for you isn't just that everything would work out. My real desire is that you would grow in spiritual maturity. I think we should be careful to make sure that we adopt Paul's reason for praying for the growth of the church in Ephesus, that we would grow in all spiritual wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, that our eyes would be enlightened, that we would know what hope is, that we would be able to ponder these great mysteries that Christ has given to us. Paul's starting to zoom out. He says, I want you to know who I am, and so I've sent you Tychicus. Who in the world is Tychicus? Everyone knows who Paul is. Who's Tychicus? Paul tells us. He says he's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. And he doesn't say it here, but if you went to Colossians chapter 4, you'd find that Tychicus also carried the church to Colossae. And he says that he is in addition to a beloved brother and a faithful minister. He's a man of substance. Colossians 4.7 says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, 
and a fellow servant in the Lord. Who is Tychicus? First, he's a beloved brother. He's been included in Paul's ministry for some time. He's mentioned about six times in the New Testament, which is significant because we find him all the way in Ephesus and all the way up to his letter to Timothy. To put that in context, he's there at the beginning of Paul's ministry and he's there at the end. He's been there the whole time. He's someone that Paul loves and trusts. He's included in some great extent in his ministry for a reason. He serves in the New Testament as the mailman. He carries this letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter to Timothy, and also to the church in Colossae. But I think he's more than an errand boy. And I think that's important for us to realize. Not only is this beloved brother more than an errand boy, he's entrusted with ministry. Paul says he's a faithful minister. Well, this is significant. As I think about Paul, and I gave you some picture of what he might have looked like while he was hunched over and under house arrest, most likely he was not able to pen the letter that was sent. And we know that from other places in the New Testament where he um, testifies, this I have written with my own hand, with some significance. I might speculate and realize this is not in the Bible. This is my supposition. This is, I'm trying to make sense of this Tychicus fellow along with you. I might speculate that Tychicus might have been Paul's scribe in addition to being his mailman. And so I have this mental picture working in my mind as I see Paul under house arrest with his beloved brother Tychicus that's been there for the entire extent of his ministry. And Paul's speaking and he's saying these things and he's saying, uh, write this down, and that, so they're writing this letter, and of course it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means that Paul is being guided and directed by the Holy Spirit to write these letters. Even though it's written by man, it's also completely written by God, because it's written exactly as God wanted Paul to write it. And so this issue of revelation is incredible. As he sits here and he's writing with Tychicus, he's telling him what to put down on paper. And then we see Tychicus... One of the reasons I think I'm safe to draw this comparison that he's more than a mailman is Paul says that he sent him for this very purpose that he may tell you everything. We've gone through Ephesians. It's a short little letter. But like I said, it's taken us about two years to get through it. Year and a half. And even then we've gone much faster than I would have liked to have gone through. Tychicus was the expositor. He's the one that as we read through this letter and we ask questions, manifold wisdom of God? What's that mean? Tychicus was the expositor that would explain these things, that he would take what Paul had written through the inspiration of the Spirit and that he would expound upon it or he would pull it out and make it explode that we would have this complete understanding and we'd be able to contextualize it and understand it and everything else so that we could really know how to apply it to our lives. He's not just a beloved brother. He's not just a male boy. He's an entrusted minister, a faithful minister. He's a man of substance. He's trusted. Now, I love Sunday school as much as the next person. But Sunday school is, has become the place of really cliche answers. I have a few in my own mind that I can think of. Sunday school teacher asks, who wrote Ephesus? 
Nine times out of ten, you're safe to say it was Paul. Where was he when he wrote it? Nine times out of ten, you're safe to say he was in prison. You can do that with most of the New Testament letters. Now, who do we need to rely on here? It's probably Jesus. If you're in the Old Testament, Moses. Tychicus was a man of substance. When we ask questions, when Sunday school teachers ask questions, when we're in Bible study and we come across questions that come up from our own mind, are we people of substance or are we just trying to get through the lesson out of routine? To be an expositor like Tychicus, we've got to ask questions that we aren't, don't necessarily know that we have the answers to. In fact, sometimes the best part about Bible study is saying, I don't know how to resolve that. It makes me appreciate God more. It makes me feel closer to Him. It makes me realize how much I need Him. And it makes me want to go back to the Scriptures that I would understand Him more. Paul says that Tychicus in Colossians is going to tell you about his activities. He's going to share this news. He's a man of substance that is there with a purpose to encourage the hearts of the church. I can just see it in my head. They're sitting in this dark room. Paul's hunched over. He can't write on his own. He's speaking with his beloved brother, someone he trusts. He's concerned about these saints that he spent three years with. And he's writing that according to the riches of this glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness, with all the fullness of God. In a little video that's playing in my head, I imagine Paul stopping there. Tychicus, could you read that back to me? What did I just say? that I want you to know what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That my concern for this church in Ephesus, what God's concern is for His church, isn't that they would be perfect, but that they would be united in this love. What is this love of Christ that we could come to it, that we could approach it? Remember when we were going through this passage the first time? What is the depth? How far has Christ reached down to redeem me? What is the breadth? How wide could I possibly see? What is the height? How high does He lift me? The past couple of weeks have been tough as we look at what is this doctrine of righteousness and how should we live our lives as a church? How should we really engage to be faithful to the Scriptures? And I admit wholeheartedly, it's been tough. It's been tough to look at righteousness and to say I'm not perfect. It's been difficult to admit that I'm not the man God wants me to be. It's been difficult to confess that my prayer life has not been what it needs to be. But what is Paul's point in bringing all of this up? What is God's point? That we would know the love that He's given us. 
he stops with his beloved brother and he says, I know I have to start applying this doctrine. I've got to talk about wives and husbands and children and parents. I've got to talk about submitting to people. I've got to talk about the reverence that we approach them. But the purpose behind submission is not subvert, subvert, sub, 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 subvergence. It's not going to come out. I can tell my brain stopped. It's not being less than. It's out of reverence for Christ. And that's why he builds up to all of this. It's out of this reverence for Christ. These doctrines are being applied. Paul's not shifted without the clutch like some sort of madman. He's not gone and expounded what is this doctrine of the church and our identity and everything. What is all of this? And then he goes, by the way, now we're going to talk about wives and husbands. These things are interrelated and interconnected. He comes to the armor of God because, well, when you start to approach faith in life, things get tough. And the more faithful you are to it, the more tough it's going to get. You put a target on your back. The helmet of salvation doesn't just protect you. It has that big fluffy thing at the top that identifies you as a Christian. It's not about looking totally different. It's not about any of this. It's about having this relationship that equips us, that edifies us. And Paul's thankful that he has it and he wants to share that. And so he shares Tychicus, his beloved brother with the church in Ephesus, because he's a man of substance that engages with the word of God and that engages with real life issues. He doesn't come to church out of cultural mandates. He comes to church because he cares about knowing God who rescued him. And ultimately... What we find in this last part that Paul has given us, he says, so that, and he says that your hearts might be encouraged. What is the point of all of this? That the church would be pointed back to Christ. What is the point of spending time, really relatively a big chunk of time in his letter, talking about how we were once children of wrath? It's almost bookends on either side of the letter. He's going to start in chapter 1 and say, You were once children of wrath. There was no good in you. You were all pitiable, despicable, depraved people. And then he comes to the end of it and he says, And here's the armor of God. Let's talk about righteousness because it's been imputed to you, so you need to rely on Christ. All of these things, it needs to be demonstrated in you because this is what will protect your heart. Is he just trying to beat them up on the coming in and going out? No. He's trying to point them back to Christ. Who is the strength that gives us the ability to do these things? Who is the person of substance that we can engage with? What makes the church different? That it's not some sort of social club. That it's people engaging and contending in relationships with one another. And this is difficult. Because I haven't met a perfect church member yet, except for myself. No, not even me. I think I've I've made my fair share of mistakes. And as we're living life with one another, guess what? We're going to make mistakes because none of us are Christ. But you know what we can rely on? That the Holy Spirit is inside of those regenerate members of the church that those regenerate members are capable of extending grace to those who are less mature than them? Because here's the difficult part. The people that are going to hurt you the most are the less mature Christians. 
those who have not been edified, those who have not been sanctified, who are maybe in a different part of their spiritual walk, they're less mature than you, their comprehension's less than you. And those are the people that we're supposed to show more grace towards. That's why no one gives any grace to the preacher, because he's supposed to be the most sanctified out of all of us. I have bad news. That's not the case. There's more people here today that are more sanctified than I am. There's people in this room that I look up to. There's people in this room who I believe are closer to their glorification than I am, not just in the sense of time, but in the way that they have contended with Scripture and the way that it's edified their life. And those people are faithful to show grace towards others. How do we live life with one another? Is the hallmark of Christian community our love? Or is it something else? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the ministry and the testimony of the churches throughout time. God, I recognize that you have been faithful to churches since they were first founded and that you remain faithful to your churches today, that we do not stand upon our own conceived ideas of who you are, but we stand upon a tradition that we have inherited from church fathers that have learned things from you. Lord, I ask that you would help us to continue to grow that our relationships would be strengthened, that we'd spend time loving one another, that we would be connected to you, that we would fulfill the mission that we have from you, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen.